This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Curtis Larson, founder of Norse Capital. This discussion first appeared on the Australian Investors Podcast in October 2018. This is a fantastic episode and one of my favourite to appear on the series thus far. Curtis talks about gold and commodities trading, quantitative strategies, lessons learned from the GFC and dot-com crisis. We also talk about portfolio management, hedging, and why winners keep on winning. This is a fascinating episode, and I hope you enjoyed the replay as much as I did. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. My guest for this episode is Curtis Larson, a private investor and portfolio manager for Norse Capital. Curtis is open and extremely generous with his time, making this one of the easiest and most relaxed conversations of the series thus far. But don't let that fool you. This chat is filled with nuggets of timeless wisdom gained over a career spanning more than two decades. Curtis grew up in Asia, trained as a computer engineer in Canada, worked for companies based in London, Paris and Tokyo, but now he resides in Sydney. A graduate of the prestigious Yale University, Curtis and I discuss his time growing up in a family that didn't talk much about money, his various jobs, successes and failures, and investment strategy. Curtis spent time in investment banking designing quant models and trading options. As with some prior episodes, we try to keep the ideas as informative as possible. But if you find yourself a little lost, I encourage you to listen again or take our free video courses on the Rask Finance website. Alternatively, reach out to me with any questions you may have. Curtis believes it is vital for self-directed investors to ask themselves if they have the temperament, inclination and time to invest money on their own behalf. As usual, we start the discussion with Curtis's early life. Okay, Curtis, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. The way we start with the podcast is we go back and we talk about your initial spark, if you like, for investing and, and money and finance. And the, I found the best way to do that is to talk about perhaps your upbringing, mm-hmm. where you come from, and any early inspirations yep. in, the, in, in finance. Well, yeah, I mean, my family wasn't really into f- savings or investing or anything like that. I mean, I grew up uh, in Asia, so I was born in Hong Kong and then lived there and in Malaysia and Singapore mm. until probably the age of 14. My dad's Canadian, my mum's Chinese. And uh, we never really, you know, savings and investing was never really... Um, discussed when I was younger and um, I look back at it now and I sort of think um, you know my parents haven't really saved much through their life and we, we we had a good life I mean we you know it was middle class life but lifestyle but never really you know owned anything never owned any property never owned any shares never mm. nothing to do with finance so I didn't get any of that from there um, I just realized when I grew up later after going to uni and that sort of thing was that you know and, and I wish sort of in some sense that somebody had told me when I was younger, the power of compounding really lets, you know, can really grow. And, and uh, so I, I, I came to uh, saving and investing probably relatively late in life. Uh, I was a uh, 
I went in my undergrad, I was computer engineering. Mm. Um, why did I choose that? Because I was interested in computer science. I did really well in school at physics and maths and it just seemed like a good thing to do. Graduated from that, worked two years in engineering and thought, well, this isn't for me. Mm. So I thought, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, what do you, what sort of degree do you get when you don't know what you want to do? Let's get an MBA. <laughs> and then the, well, the good thing with an MBA is that it gives you skills across a breadth of, of uh, disciplines. And then from there, you can sort of decide what you want to do. Um, and then again, I sort of, I, I applied for an MBA. I did really well on the GMAT. So I got in, which is an entrance exam sort of mm-hmm. thing for MBA schools across the US. And I got into Yale University, mm-hmm. got my MBA there. And uh, um, that's where I sort of really got interested in finance. We spoke off air a bit about this, but uh, perhaps you can flesh out your experience at Yale yeah. and some of the things you might remember about the classes. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how it really compares to other MBA schools having not been there. I, I'd imagine they've got quite a lot in common. But the, the really good thing about Yale was that uh, your professors were the ones who wrote the textbook. Mm. Um, they would have, every Friday, we'd have people from industry come in and, and you'd have the likes of the CEO of Sony would come from Japan and, and give us a, you know, a, uh, a talk and then you know, have a few drinks with him afterwards. Um, one of the professors was James Tobin, who's a Nobel laureate in economics. You have a class with him. Mm. Um, so that sort of thing. And, and then also the connection with people that you have there is, is really, really, really good. Mm. So um, I, I suppose that'd be the difference. Um, but then, so, so I, I, I really got interested in finance there. One of my professors was a, uh, John Ingersoll, who, who, who wrote one of the options uh, textbooks. Um, so given I had a math background, I sort of went with that pretty pretty seamlessly. Um, and then some other courses in investing, that sort of thing. It's interesting looking back because uh, back in those days, when we're talking early 90s here, um, everything was really efficient market hypothesis. Mm. So everything was, you know, I mean, even one of the, the guy who wrote Random Walk Down Wall Street from memory might have come from Yale, I can't remember. Um, so uh, it was very much, you know, there's no point picking stocks because the market's efficient. Mm. Um, here's how you calculate the efficient frontier. Here's, you know, all those sorts of things, cap M. Um, and, and that was sort of my initial background into it. So do you, it's interesting that you mentioned options um, because I believe you still use them today. Yeah. Do you think you know you said the the maths background that that technical understanding? Do you think that um, we're jumping ahead a bit here, but the options are something that perhaps someone without a math maths background should be attempting to use? Yeah, it depends how you use it. So um, and so I, I worked after after you know I worked in uh, investment banking for eighteen years, sort of thing, mm. uh, on trading desks, and we would run derivatives books, um, exotic option books, and. For that sort of thing where you're trading volatility and you're trading gamma and all the Greeks and then it, it does make a difference. But the way I use options now is it's not it's not like that. I, I, I use them for hedging purposes. I, I use them to express a view. Mm. You don't I mean obviously it all, all all helps, but you don't need to go into how Black Scholes works, mm. which I, I did before. So I, I don't do any of that anymore. Mm. Um, okay. Well we'll get to a bit more of that in, in a moment, but um, perhaps for listeners and for my benefit, you can talk to us about maybe your first 
job after after Yale? Yeah, so uh, I got a job with uh, Dresdner Bank. So at the time, they were number two German bank behind Deutsche and ahead of Commerce Bank. Um, and I started as a, a quantitative analyst. Mm. So I would do things like um, pricing up yield curves, uh, bonds, like which bonds are cheap and expensive, or pricing models for traders to use. Um, I did that for a couple of years here in Sydney and and also in, in Paris. They sent me to Paris. Mm. Um, just an aside, I met my wife there in Aussie. Oh, great. All the way to Paris. All the way Aussie, Aussie girl, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I, I did that for a couple of years, um, and then I, uh, I I wanted to join the trading side. I I, I started off in currency options. Mm-hmm. We ran an Aussie book here, and then uh, I I did precious metals options mm. uh, with Dresden as well. So I was with them for about five and a half years, and then I went to Tokyo with Credit Suisse. Mm. Um, at the time, they were Credit Suisse Financial Products, who were one of the innovators in with how to price swaps, how to anyway. Probably a bit left field, but um, so I, I did uh, again. I did precious metals mm. options with them. We we ran um, an exotic options book. It was probably one of the biggest hedging books in the world. Uh, us and J.P. Morgan Chase, and certainly the most exotic. So we would we would do things for miners, predominantly quite a quite a few Aussie mining clients back in the days, like Newcrest, um, you name it. Whoever the Aussie in the U.S. and all the gold miners were. We would hedge hedge their uh, gold price risk for them, right? Okay. So when they produce gold, they would sell. You could sell gold forward, mm. or they could do with option structures around that, and and take some of the price risk away from them, and we would manage that risk. Mm. And obviously, charge them for, for for the privilege. Yeah. So for for listeners' benefit, uh, the miners are obviously producing gold. Yep. And they like the, I suppose the, assuredness that you you can write a contract and and secure a price for that. Yep that particular commodity that they're producing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And was this your time at Credit Suisse, was this in the lead up to the GFC? No. So I was with them from 98 to 2003. Oh, sorry. Earlier, yeah. The dot-com boom and bust. Yep. Um, and uh, so I, I remember because I, I didn't really trade equity. I didn't really buy equities for myself. Mm. So, so if you go by like the first trade I did for myself, um, I wasn't even, I was just one of the quant guys and I went and bought, went up to the options desk. In those days, compliance and everything was very different from what it is now. Hmm. But I went up to the options desk and I had a view on dollar yen. So I said, I want to buy a dollar yen. I can't even remember it was a call or put at the time. And I did the same with dollar, dollar mark hmm. and made made pretty good money in two weeks, that sort of thing. Right. right? And think, well, this thing's easy, yeah. which it isn't. <laughs> and then I re- and then um, I remember in the dot-com boom, half the floor um, in the trading trading room, this was at Dresdner, would, would be uh, trading tech stocks for themselves. Hmm. You know, so they just do their job just, just on their personal account. And I, 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 I couldn't do it, but uh, maybe I should have. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> at least for a time, we should have. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now we're going to skip forward a bit uh, to around about 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and you take a job at Mitsui, is that right? Yeah, so I was with Credit Suisse uh, till 2003 here and, in, and and mostly in London. Okay. And then um, I, if things had been different, I probably would have stayed in London. But uh, my wife is Aussie, wanted to come mm-hmm. back to Oz. So he came back to Oz. I worked for Mitsui for just under a year. Mm. Again, um, in the precious metals world, um, providing hedging for uh, Aussie producers. Mm. And Mitsui were one of the 
Japanese conglomerates, the way they, they structured everything was different companies. So there's a Mitsui precious metals. There's a, there's a basically a company for every bit. There's mm. one for base metals, there's whatever. Um, and I was with them for a year and then, uh, Avian Ambro for the last five years of, um, of my time in, in, uh, investment banking. Okay. So it seems like you've had some world experiences. You've been all around the world for work. Yeah. Uh, do you think finance is a good, is a good job or industry to be in? Uh, it depends on, on your personality. So to me at the time, I loved my job. Mm. So it was like, uh, I'm getting paid to sit with a bunch of guys, um, having fun. I mean, obviously we worked really hard, but having fun and, and uh, you know, you're, you're trading big books in the market sometimes at, at some stages. I was the biggest book in the market and, you know, it was really fun. Mm. Towards the end of it, though, I think the industry sort of changed and um, it wasn't so much fun anymore. Mm. Compliance is a good thing, but compliance became more and more and more of a burden. They cut back people, so the number of people doing the jobs was cut back further and further and further. So you, whoever's left is basically doing the job of more, you know, a number of people. And it's a lot harder to do what you want to do. And in the last job I was at at ABN AMRO, it was through the GFC. And things changed in the GFC as well. Mm. I remember being at the coalface of the GFC. And so I've talked to other investors and saying how they were buying lots in the GFC. And I think being so close to it and seeing how, how close the financial markets came to almost meltdown was was really quite an experience mm. um, so if you go back I had started buying equities for myself before my first equity purchase was um, Qantas in the IPO mm. and then I sold it when uh, Alan Greenspan came on and said this is irrational exuberance in the market and that was my own um, <laughs> so basically I didn't know what I was doing sounds like a pretty good time to get out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in the GFC so I had uh I had some of my own shares and I had some managed funds and I had uh, a margin loan because that's the thing you did. Mm. And in the middle of the GFC, everything's falling around you. You can see other, you know, the bank you're working at doesn't want to deal with the next bank because we're afraid that they're going to go under. So you can see all this stuff happening and almost in a way you're too close to it to, to take a bigger picture view. So, mm. and, and it's sort of, we'll come to it later in, in terms of what I do now, but in some way it's sort of, that experience has shaped how I, what I'm doing now. So using uh, leverage, for example, I don't do that mm. because, you know, having a margin loan in the GFC and everything's going down is not comfortable. Mm. Um, I'm, luckily, I managed to pay it off. And also the other thing is managed funds versus direct equities. I had confidence in the, the equities I chose myself because I knew about them. Mm. You know, I, I invested stuff in funds just because that's what you did. And I didn't have any vibe no confidence in them. I sold them. Uh, I can't remember where the ASX was. It was maybe it was 4,000 or something and it went down to 3,000. I looked and said, I'm a genius. Hmm. Right. But did I buy any down below? No, it just came back up. Hmm. You know, it's another lesson sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. So you were at the coal face. There's, there's almost chaos around you. you don't. Yep. Do you think there were, looking back on it now, do you think perhaps there were some maybe behavioral nudges you could have given yourself in advance so things like a, a rules-based strategy or something like that so i do that kind of now so if we talk about what i do now i sort of do things uh almost in a way to hack myself so basically i'm i that's why i run a large cash position mm. that's why i do hedging and i i think it, in some sense it's it's almost knowing in advance um, and being prepared in advance for you know, because not every day is going to be sunshine and roses. 
that's why I, I run things the way I do. And, and, and it, I have gotten more near to it over time, but also part of that is because I have a high cash position. It's because I have some hedging in place that, you know, I can look at it a bit more dispassionately. And, and also when I look back, not everything was bad because I bought Apple shares back then, hmm. right? And, and yeah. Apple got creamed, but because I, I, that's, that's another lesson is that because when you know what you buy, you'll have confidence in it to, to hold on and, and to, it's more than 20 bags since then, I think 23 bags or something since then. Mm-hmm. And I've added on the way up, but, um, like with the Qantas shares that I bought, I just bought them because somebody said it was good. So, so those sorts of things, if you, if you're buying because it's somebody's told you or you got a tip or you don't have confidence or, you know, you're not going to hold on and you're not going to uh, make rational decisions. Mm. So I sold all my managed shares because I didn't know what, you know, but the stuff I bought myself was the stuff I kept mm. and added to. So I guess that's one lesson that I've mm. sort of drew from that. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I suppose our role as advisors is to, to give people ideas and, and make recommendations but it's also paramount to educate people and for them to understand for themselves because we all think we'll act rationally or Mm. you know we'll do the right thing and you know hindsight's a wonderful thing but um definitely and it's we've we've talked about in in this series before about the circle of competence and and knowing your limitations too yep both really important okay so let's jump forward um a little bit dvo funds 001 funds yeah right can you explain because it was a new name to me. What the the company and the funds management company was yeah, so and what you did? A hedge fund. Uh, a friend of mine and an ex colleague from Credit Suisse started it. Okay, uh, yeah. and I'd invested it in in him uh, while I was at ABN Amro through the GFC, and then I uh, when I left ABN Amro, I joined him. Uh, so there were two of us running it, and what we were trying to do was uh, it was basically commodity focused. So we were, both of our backgrounds were in commodities. Mm-hmm. And the problem with commodities is that, and I think even Warren Buffett himself has said this, is that it's very hard to, to apply a value investing approach to it because your underlying co- you know, product just is, is, a, is a commodity and the price goes up and down. So mm. what we try to do is say, okay, look, we can hopefully, if we're good enough, we can identify good minds. We can, we can you know, analyze that. We can identify good management. We can't control, like, say, for example, it's a gold company. We can't control the gold price. So why don't we hedge out that part? We know how to do hedging. Uh, so we can do the value investing approach to picking the good company, picking good management. And by hedging out the, the commodity price risk, we're, we're not exposed to that. And um, that will give us a, a good risk-adjusted return. And we did this across the commodity suite from like precious metals, base metals, uh, energy, uh, mine, or that sort of thing. And we, so, so the typical thing we would do is, for example, we would buy shares in, I'm just picking up, you know, any, any randomly, we would buy shares in, in Newcrest and we would sell, sell gold, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I uh, did that for uh, two and a half years. It's quite complicated. So, so we, we got decent returns. But it, w- it was almost like um, you're running 100 miles an hour to to get these returns. And risk adjusted, they they were decent. But what you what you do is that somebody so say you get a 10% return. Somebody will say, "Well, I just invested in the ASX, and the ASX just returned 20 this this last month." And you, you sort of explain, "Well, I've hedged this that," mm. but it doesn't 
doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. So we sort of wound that up. Uh, I left it uh, when the biggest, so our biggest investor was another fund. Um, and that fund withdrew money because on a separate note, they got investigated by ASIC. They had to say, well, what, what investments do you, the ASIC wound them up and say, well, what investments do you have? Oh, this one's liquid. We'll, we'll sell that one. Mm. And and the other thing that, that I learned from those days is, is that uh, compliance is a huge issue. So we spent so much time on compliance. I, I remember one month doing nothing but compliance, just coming up with a know your client and program so that ASIC could come in and say, oh, yep, yep, tick the box. So it's, it's quite hard when you, so we ran about 25 million. To my mind, you, you sort of, these days you need at least 100 million before you, you sort of jump the hurdle of the compliance box. Mm. Yeah, it seems to be only going one way, the compliance mm. hurdle. Uh, I know firsthand. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's uh, talk now about uh, Norse Capital. Yep. Why, why did you name it Norse Capital? So my background on uh, my, my dad's side is, is Norwegian, so oh. Norwegian Canadian. Yep. So, and four letters is short, so when you're filling out forms, it's it's easier to do than some long one. So yeah. why not? <laughs> why not? Okay. Can I you like t- Norse mythology when I was a kid too. Uh, oh right. Okay. So can can you give us the? Um, I mean, describe it why you went down this path um, that you did, how you funded it, all the details. Yep. So it's I. it was sort of born out after I left EVO one and got anti-compliance or, or, or jaded compliance. <laughs> I sort of thought, well, I want to be able to, to invest my own money uh, like a family office and not really be spending my time doing compliance. Mm. And I know I'm going to invest anyway. So I set it up um, as a family office. I had savings from... The last how many now twenty years of mm. of work and um, and just started from there. Okay, and friends and family. And friends, yeah, some friends and family. Um, but we're not so far. I'm not taking any external capital. Yeah, um, maybe it'll change in the future, but we'll see. It says hello to compliance again. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, until that time. Um, okay, so what's the thirty thousand foot view? What's your the overview of your investment process? Yeah, so so. And it's sort of grown over time, but um, I, I sort of really am looking for, I guess, what you call long-term compounders. Yep. And basically growth compounders. Uh, when I started investing, I really thought that I could do, you know, I suppose a bit of my background. I thought that I could do everything by the numbers. You know, we'll just do value investing based on these statistics and these numbers and uh, things that are trading under cash backing and things like that. And uh, or, you know, low PE multiples. I started out that way thinking that numbers are everything. Mm. And over time, I sort of realized that uh, where have I actually been making, you know, where, where do you actually make money? It's, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that kind of like, oh, I bought some stuff at Listen Cash Backing. And, but the, time, the amount of time you spent on those and then you're flipping them over and then you go to research again, whereas... I think I remember a couple of studies that really resonated with me were um, one was, uh, I think it was, uh, it, anyway, it's a study on the S&P 500 saying what returns are. And, if you, you know, everybody throws out there's this 10% per annum return or mm. Aussie shares or US shares, whatever. But when you look at it, most of that return is made out of a skew of these, these guys on the right-hand side of the skew that have done really well, compounded and grown multi-bagged over time and a whole bunch of everybody else yep 
right? And there was another study that sort of backed that up. I think it was the Fidelity one where they, they looked back and said, who are their best customers been over the last how many decades? And it turns out the ones who were inactive, i.e. mostly were dead. They didn't touch their accounts. Mm. And why? Because they let it compound. Mm. Uh, whereas if I go back to that bit in the GFC, you so if you're short-term focused and, you, and you're seeing that stuff happening around you, you're not letting things compound. So I, I guess through all those experiences, I, I guess what I'm trying to do is is find companies that basically will compound and I can you know, hopefully stay with them for long periods of time and they'll keep growing and keep growing and uh, they'll more than outweigh because of the, the losers. Because yeah. if, you, if you get those ones right, you don't have to have a very high hit rate. Mm. You just have to have a few of them and they'll outweigh all your all your losers. Mm. So, uh, and if I look back on the portfolio, that's that's the ones that have really made the vast majority of all the returns. Mm. You, uh, uh, you wrote recently um, that your winners keep winning. Yes, and add to them as well. Yeah. You mentioned Apple. Yeah. Um, can you provide any other examples? Yeah, so Apple was one uh, I bought early on um, on a, Adjusted price would be below ten dollars. It was nine dollars something, wow. and uh, so this pre-split was ever so post-split. It's 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 that, and uh, and I actually added as it went up. So this is this is the real key. So you, I don't put a huge amount in in one place in, in one at the t- you know one equity at a time, but I put some in. I was confident with it, and I got confident, and it proved the thesis. I add more, mm-hmm. and that had you know more than ten bag. And the idiot in me, uh, back uh, whenever it was, I didn't follow my, my mantra to try and let things grow. I thought, oh, okay, it's become the biggest market cap company in the world. iPhone, it's a hardware company. I didn't look beyond oh, how, how can they pivot. I sold half of it. And that was uh, between 90 and 120 bucks. Now we're $100 <laughs> higher. Right? So, so in a way, almost the biggest losers have been, the, have been selling too early. I mean, there's other ones. That, there's another example that I, I bought Altium. At a low price, I can't remember what it was, two dollars or something, and added on the way up. And when it got to, I think about thirteen dollars fifty. No, sorry, the first time it was nine dollars, just shy of ten dollars. I sold all out of it because I said, well, based on my valuation, it's gone up. It's too high. Came back to the sevens. I bought them all back. Thought I'm a genius. <laughs> Did the same at thirteen fifty. Of course, it didn't go down. Now it's twenty something bucks. <laughs> right. So. So, so the, those are lessons. But, but if I if I look at the portfolio, every single one of the ones in the top five are all multi baggers, mm. and they're there because I left them there and let them grow and added when they when they did well. I mean, there's obviously going to be some that, that you know you sell along the way, or if your portfolio weighting's too high, you sell. But mm. um, like Apple's over a twenty bagger. My biggest position now is Appen, which has now come back to a seven bagger. ProMedicus of a nine bagger. Even Amazon, you know, five and a half bags. It's not that I was a genius at picking them, but it's that you know I let them run mm. and add when when they go higher, which is psychologically sometimes difficult to do. But mm. Mm. Um, you're um, you're you're watering your flowers, not your weeds. Yes, although mm. I have been known to cut some flowers before. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need. That's right. You don't need many of them to, to mm. make a serious amount of money over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, Reading your updates, um, I can see that a large part of the portfolio is invested in Australian small caps or smaller yeah. companies, and then you get the exposure overseas to some 
apples, for example, than mm-hmm. mega caps, if you like. Um, can you describe why you like the small caps? Yeah, so a couple of things, I guess. One in terms of growth that you, you know, theoretically you're getting in early. You, you can see the story as it's unfolding. Mm. Um, also, I, I think it's uh, small caps aren't as followed by the market. So, you know, if you do your research and you um, you're not competing against a whole bunch of analysts who like I don't know how many analysts there are covering BHP or NAB. Mm. Um, there's probably you know potentially none. So you're, you're looking at that. Uh, some studies have shown as well that small cap, small caps have outperformed in the long run by a few percentage points. And interesting as well, small cap growth and small cap value have both done very well. And the growth is small cap growth has done, in one sense, hasn't done quite as well as small cap value. Actually, maybe the numbers updated now might be different, but at one point they 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 lag small cap value. But that's because when it reaches a certain size, it gets cut out of that index. Mm. Whereas if you if you keep following them once they're no longer small cap, well then that's how you get small cap become mega cap. Mm. And you've got the ability to to follow them from being a small company to a mid cap yes. to potentially a large cap. Yeah, you know, that's that's hopefully that's what you that's what the you theory. Get. Yeah, yeah. How about um, your investments abroad? Mm-hmm. Do you think some investors are missing the boat, particularly Australian investors with that home country bias? Yeah, I think definitely because uh, obviously just from a numbers point of view. Um, the ASX, I think, represents something like 2% of the market, the global market cap weighting. But not only that, the ASX is huge weightings to banks, resource companies. There's not that, from on a weighting point of view, there's not that many um, technology stocks or stocks that give you exposure to, uh, or medical device stocks or biotech, you know, things that are really changing the world as we know it. And mm. there's some great Aussie and Kiwi companies that are, but, um, you know, you don't want to just limit yourself to um, our little corner of the of this little branch on the end of the tree. You, you invest locally, but also invest globally. Now, I just do it with US because it's easier for me. In theory, you, should, you know, don't just stop there. Yeah, I mean, from... My perspective, um, sure, you've got to, if I'm a, you know, a retail investor or a mum and dad investor, you've got to fill out a few extra forms and hmm. it might seem a little bit more complicated, but um, if you just do reading and you understand what you're doing, yep. it makes a whole heap of sense in my in my view. Um, and you make the point about um, the banks. Uh, if you own a property in Australia, your, your job might be linked to construction. Yep, you already have exposure. Yep. You don't need that. You don't need a, your superannuation fund probably has exposure to the banks as well. You probably don't need that extra um, exposure in your own personal name. So you, you're a single man outfit nowadays. Mm-hmm. How do you find new ideas? Yeah, so a number of ways. Uh, you know, I do do screens. Um, so I, I, I don't know if you know Joel Greenbatt's Magic Formula. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's one of the guys. I really like his books. Every At least every month I'll, I'll run a screen on the ASX and uses magic formula and tweak it a bit for uh, momentum and that sort of thing and just to have a look or sometimes I'll just go through manually one by one a few ideas I've just found by well let's just rank everything in terms of some multiple EV bit done and let's just go A to B to C I've done that which can be a bit boring but things you do in addition to that you know I work in an office with um five other guys who have a similar sort of background who are managing um, funds and so we bounce ideas off each other uh, I just read a lot and listen to podcasts a lot as well oh great <laughs> um, yeah divide the podcasts up a third of the podcasts I listen to are probably investing a third are rugby and uh, 
what's the other third? Just politics or astronomy, that sort of thing. Just to break it up a bit. Yeah, just to break it up. (laughs) Great. Um, Um, Okay, so I've read before that um, some of the things you look for in high-quality management mm -hmm. um, and tailwinds. Yep. Uh, Can you maybe flesh them out a bit? Let's start with management and I suppose why why that's important, but also from uh, something for the listeners to take away, how you you assess management? Yeah, I I think especially with small caps, management is really important. Problem is that it's not so easy to tell uh, how good they are. So I, I have met management in quite a few companies and maybe it's my personality, I believe people. And, uh, you know, sometimes you drink the Kool-Aid and, and they don't, t- they just tell you what you want to hear. Mm. Um, so it's, it's nothing, it's not easy. It's, it's more of a qualitative thing. And, but one thing I do find is that, uh, you can, you can cut through a lot of that if they own a decent chunk of, of the shares. And I mean, you, you'll see some who are gifted it and it's, you know, find out how they, how they got their shares, but. Um, that's one thing I use, um, but it's it is very important. Uh, and if I look at some of my losers in the small in small cap land, in hindsight, you can go back and point. Well, you know, management's a red flag, mm. but uh, I I don't think there's any easy, from my point of view, no easy answers in how you tell. Um, but there's you know general things. Mm. Are they wasting shareholder capital? Are they, you know, just gifting themselves shares left, right, and center, or that sort of thing? But mm. well, that makes sense. Um, some listeners probably don't have the time or the ability to go out and speak with management, mm. but you know, like you said, there's a there's one telltale sign there. Skin, yeah. skin in the game. But I mean, even even speaking with management, you can get fooled the, oh, yeah. the other way. So mm. it's happened to me before. So <laughs> it's happened to us all i think if you've been in it long enough uh, in the game long enough so how about tailwinds what are you what are you looking for so uh tailwinds i i basically when i look at a, a company I, i'll have a checklist um and things like tailwinds will be different industries will show up uh so if if your industry is going well and then you can see so the industry tailwinds but also in company specific levels like some of the things on my checklist are excuse me how fast has revenue been going Hmm. How for how long, um, and uh, things like that. What what sort of sectors are they in? Is the sector growing? So so those tailwinds for me. If you get the industry right, then you're already halfway there. Then you get the then you you get the companies right. Is the rest of the story. Hmm. So I'm cognizant of the fact that in the portfolio we have quite a big exposure to technology, for example. Hmm. So that's that's not an accident because of I view in the long term. If I look out three to five years, I have to be confident that you know, the growth is there. Even if I get the valuation wrong, the growth will, will, will still be there and will um, pull me out at the other end. You you, you touched on it there and, and earlier on when you said the valuation of Altium. T- twofold question: How how much emphasis do you place on valuation, and mm-hmm. how do you typically arrive at yeah, so in the beginning, I put basically almost everything on valuation. But as as I've gone by, one valuation is is more an art than a science. Mm. Sure, the, the spreadsheet part is all you know going through. So I'll do discounted cash flows. I'll look at multiples, that sort of thing. But you know, nobody can t- can say, look at you in the eye and say, "Well, I value I don't know 
uh, I value happen at $12.78. All that means is I went in my spreadsheet and I said, okay, what have I got for the terminal growth and what have I assumed for for this, that, and the other. So I I do use uh, discounted cash flows. I try and get a range, but I also try and look at it probabilistically and say, okay, what's the, how confident I am with this and get a, get a range out of it. But I've also learned through experience that um, I won't really just sell on valuation. Um, I mean, I have in the past and I probably will still do it, but, but I, I also am more likely to, to trim and say, say, okay, portfolio weighting is this, valuation is this, why don't we take some off? But I've learned the hard way that, you know, if you have a good company, you try and stay in. And that's what I do with some of the other uh, things I do in the portfolio to to help me stay in these positions longer. Mm. Um, so people get cold feet, or yep. you know, you might be successful in, and an investment goes up fifty percent, hundred percent. If you're even, I suppose, more astute or lucky. Yeah. Uh, however, you want to frame it. Well, how do you think about? I mean, you you, you see these names up so much. Mm-hmm. Apple shares are up so much. How do you think about protecting that? Um, you use an option strategy now. Yeah. Perhaps you can explain how you do it because I thought that was kind of yeah. unique. Well, f- well, first and foremost, you still have to have, regardless of what your your hedging strategy is, you still have to have confidence in the actual, in each individual investment. So like if I look at Apple, I mean, yeah, it's gone up a lot, but I mean, it's forward PE is, I don't know, something like, Current price maybe is under seventeen, it's sixteen and a half, something like that, in line with the rest of the S and P five hundred. You know, it's been growing. Services thirty one percent. It's had four quarters in a row of, of double digit growth. So, and yet it's still at that sort of PE. And you, you know, in one sense, you look at it and you go, okay, uh, it's a hardware company, it deserves a lower PE, but it's it's getting services approaching twenty percent. So, to, based on that, des- deserves a higher multiple. So each and every individual company you still have to believe in. And uh, if I look at the top five things in my holdings, all of them are profit-making. All of them, uh, like even App and number one, has, I think that I'm, I'm just using PEs because it's easy to talk about, but mm. it's got a PE of 30, but it had growth of over 100%, organic growth of over 50%. So you get on a PE growth basis, is less than one. So... So my biggest weightings will be that. Then there'll be things smaller, lower down the other end of the scale in terms of portfolio weighting will be more speculative stuff or things that aren't profitable yet. Mm -hmm. But I won't give them a huge weighting in the portfolio. Uh, So now to get back to your your question on hedging. Mm. So why do I hedge? Well, a few things. One's behavioral. We mentioned this before. Um, I have a a high cash weighting as the market goes up, that cash weighting automatically becomes a smaller percentage. Mm-hmm. And then so that entices me to, if I want the cash weighting to to to, to say neutral, then I'll sell some. If it goes down, cash weighting becomes bigger, it entices me to buy some, all else being equal. Mm. And again, with the hedging, uh, basically what that's trying to do is basically, it's not that I won't lose money on the way down unless I go and hedge the whole portfolio, it's way too expensive. But what that does is it says, okay, as the market goes down, if the market's going down just because the market's going down, PE multiples, compressor, you know, the mood has changed, the underlying businesses of the companies who invested in, unless they've changed, 
are hopefully still there. So, so if you still believe in those, you still want to hold on because you can still see in three to five years time, these will be companies that will be, you know, well, it will grow and, mm. and uh, more than outlast their current valuations. But in the short term, if, if I have some market hedges in place, well, basically what I'm doing, this enables me to stay in these, hopefully enables me to stay in them longer because I'm not getting whipped around just because the market's get, getting whipped around. I'm not pretending that I can time the market. Um, mm. I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, especially these days, I'm sort of building up the short positions and the, and the hedges and the cash waiting just because I think, you know, valuation-wise, the market's probably, mm. probably in the later stages, but it could could still keep going up for another two or three years and who knows. Mm. I can't time it, but if I'm hedging and if I'm uh, try identifying some shorts, then... I'll be able to stay in my conviction um, positions longer. When you say shorts, yeah, what are you what are you referring to? Specific shares that shorts? Yeah, so I, I do a combination. I'll, I'll um, uh, do index hedges, so like uh, the ASX two hundred. Uh, in the US, I use uh, SPY and Triple Q ETFs. They're, so one's basically an ETF for the S and P five hundred. One's an ETF for the Nasdaq top one hundred. And then obviously there's the ASX 200 indices. So I'll either short them or I'll, I'll also uh, do put option strategies on them. And I'll also short some individual shares. I try and find shares that are that I think are, are poor quality or you know have a catalyst on the downside. Having said that, if I look at my hedges and cash weighting and uh, shorts, I would have been better off in the beginning just being fully invested and just leave it like that. Because performance might knock on wood was done quite well, but uh, I could have grossed the eighteen percent up to twenty four percent, and I spend probably two percent per, per year in hedging. That would be twenty six percent, right? But I am also conscious that we've been in a bull market this whole time. Uh, the story might not be different that way, but also behaviorally, even though this has so far cost me money, what it does do is when things go down, I'm more inclined to to look for things and buy as opposed to, you know, being frightened out of my position or that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, so I've, I've basically know know yourself in advance, design things so that, you know, mm. I can I can continue on with the strategy I set. So how do, how do you think about, um, or not how do you think about, it, how do you track the performance of the portfolio? Do you software or no? You so software? yeah, so I do it myself. I, I basically have a uh, spreadsheet. I do everything in spreadsheets. Maybe oh. it's my uh, um, background in computing and using mm. spreadsheets for the last couple of decades. So I do everything in spreadsheets. And I calculate everything myself. Mm. Do you think that um, that tracking mm. the performance has allowed you to iterate and, and make better decisions over time? I think so. I think uh, uh, even so, the reason why I started the website, I. I promised a mate of mine who I've also helped in investing uh, that I would do a website and I said well okay look if I'm still doing this after five years I'll do it so mm-hmm. I did it uh, where can our listeners where can listeners find out more about you norsecapital.com.au mm-hmm. and I also have a Twitter feed if you're interested uh, norse underscore capital yep. there's a newsletter they can subscribe to yeah that's on the website if you want to you can uh, put in your email address and click subscribe mm, great Okay, final question, Curtis. The well, my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you could go back in time and, and tell a younger you something, one thing yeah. about finance, investing, or money, what would it be? I think it's an easy one. I probably can't remember I touched on it earlier, but just start early because compounding really makes a huge difference. Um, my family was never really into that, and I only I only started late, but just start investing. I remember even when uh, I was living in the States and other people were investing, and I, uh, you know, oh, the share markets just kept going up and up, and oh, I'm too late. And I, I sort of hesitated and, you know, just there's no perfect way, time to start, just start. Mm. Great. Wonderful yeah. advice. Thanks for your time, Curtis. Thanks for that. Cheers, on.